Uh, let's bow again. Father, thank you for this morning, and we thank you for your son Jesus, who willingly uh, went to the cross and bore our sins in his body on the cross and died for our sins and rose from the dead. Thank you because of him we have forgiveness of sins and that we are the redeemed. Uh, We are those who are holy because of your son Jesus. And Father, I just pray as we look into your holy word that you would help us to become more and more like Christ, your son, that you would point out areas of sin and that you are desiring to change in us so that we would become uh, what you desire us to be in your son. Father, bless your word as it goes out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, today we're going to continue in our look in the book of Jonah, and we're going to see uh, how we can know when God's discipline is working. Now, the reality is God does discipline the ones he loves. If you haven't been disciplined by the Lord, if he hasn't used circumstances to cause you to see sin and become more like Christ, then I would examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Uh, There are those who don't know Christ who go through circumstances, and they never become more like Christ. They adapt to those circumstances, however it might be. But for the believer, God uses the difficulties that come upon us that he allows or ordains, as we'll see, uh, to cause us to recognize sin and to grow uh, in our relationship with Christ. And so we're going to see today how we can know if God's discipline is working in us. Uh, would you turn your Bibles to the book of Jonah? We're going to be looking at Jonah chapter 2 today. And I'm just going to briefly review the context of the book of Jonah. We know that Jonah is a true story. Uh, we know that Jonah is a real prophet, uh, 2 Kings chapter 14. It's not a fish story. It's not an allegory. It's a true story. And it's most important to note that the Lord Jesus himself affirms that this is a true story. In Matthew chapter 12, he affirms the reality of uh, Jonah and his preaching and being in the whale and also uh, the repentance of the Ninevites. We see that in Luke chapter 11 also. Now, I've shared each of the last few times we've been in the book of Jonah the context in relationship to the Jews and in relationship to Nineveh. Now, we saw that Israel was disobedient. Uh, We went through from Genesis up to where they were now. They were disobedient on their way to exile. And it's important to realize that Jonah, in a sense, typifies the way Israel was at this time. Uh, They were religious, uh, they feared the Lord, but yet they were disobedient. Now, we saw that uh, uh, Jonah happens, this book of Jonah happens around uh, the time where the northern kingdom and the southern kingdoms are separate after Solomon's sin. Uh, it's during Jeroboam II's reign, sometime between 793 and 758 B.C. And we certainly know that uh, the northern kingdom would be taken into captivity in 722 B.C., that within a hundred years, as we'll see in chapter 3, of the repentance of the Ninevites, uh, the northern kingdom would be taken into captivity, or actually less, less than that, excuse me, within about uh, 30 years they'd be taken into captivity, but a hundred years from then, the Ninevites would be actually disciplined and uh, judged by the Lord. 
it's important to recognize these Israelites are on their way to God's severe discipline. Now, also, uh, these uh, Ninevites at the same time were, were very evil. They were very wicked. They were a bloody city. They were an idolatrous city. They were uh, a, um, an adulterous city, spreading their wickedness and their idolatry to other nations. And we have the prophecy concerning this uh, wicked city in Nahum. And indeed, in 642 B.C., then that's about 100 years later, uh, God would bring about that uh, judgment upon these Ninevites. A bloody city full of lies, spiritual harlotry that inter- inter- influenced the nations, including Israel. Uh, Nineveh was like Satan, and, uh, a murderer and a liar and a, and a tempter. So then, we see Israel is spiraling into sin, and even though they were God's people, and also Ninevite, the superpower, Nineveh, the superpower of the day, the capital of, of Assyria, the superpower, they were on their way to judgment because of their wickedness. So with that in mind, we come to chapter 2, where we're going to see how we can know that God's discipline is working in our lives. You know, we can recognize we're being disciplined, but are, is it working? Are we responding? How can we know? So you might remember we saw in the last few weeks in chapter 1 that it's foundational that uh, Jonah disobeyed the Lord and was disciplined, as we will see, almost to the point of death here in chapter 2. I want to read Jonah chapter 1 again. It was read earlier, and I want to read it again to bring us up to right where we are. Jonah chapter 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it. For their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, went down into it with them, with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid. And every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. And each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account is this calamity, on whose account is this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Uh, where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are, are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, I fear the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? How could you do this? For they, for the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they said to him, Why, What should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. And he said to them, pick me up, throw me into the sea, then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that it is on account of me this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, that they, but they could not. For the sea had become, the sea was becoming even stormier against them. 
Then they called upon the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let this, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us, for thou, O Lord, hast done as thou hast pleased. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord anointed, appointed, not anointed, but appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. So Jonah, the prophet, uh, is uh, called to go to Nineveh and proclaim against them because of their wickedness. And Jonah, because of his attitude towards the Ninevites, we see, and a lack of faith and understanding of, or, or because of an understanding of God's true character that God would act, he decides to go the other way. So Jonah just obeys, and he goes the opposite direction towards Tarshish. But the Lord God does not allow him to get far, and he sends a great storm upon the ship, a storm in which they're about to perish, and the pagans try to call on each of their gods, and to try, and they try to discern on whom this calamity has brought, who has brought this upon them. In God's sovereignty and providence, the lot falls on Jonah, and he is questioned, and the cat is out of the bag. He is the reason why all this is happening, that, that he is running from the presence of the Lord. So the tailors try to desperately save the ship and Jonah. They try to save it, uh, but things get worse, and then the most wonderful thing happens. We see the sailors are saved. They call upon the name of the Lord. They greatly fear him. They understand his sovereignty. And then they throw Jonah overboard. And then they respond in faith, experiencing peace in a sense. The seas are calm. And they then uh, worship uh, the Lord and offer him to pay vows to him. There's a real change in them. And yet uh, we see that God then uh, appointed a great fish, a large fish, a large sea creature, to swallow Jonah, to swallow Jonah. And the term fish in Hebrew just speaks of a sea creature. And obviously it was large enough to swallow Jonah. That's where we get the idea of a whale. That's uh, what we think about. It doesn't say a whale, but it says a large sea creature. Okay. So with that in mind, uh, we see uh, Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. And again, this is no fish story. This is a true story. The Lord Jesus himself affirms the reality of this. Uh, Matthew chapter 12. Uh, Turn there, Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, three days and three nights, just like our passage says, uh, so too the Son of Man, uh, so too, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Uh, the men of Nineveh shall stand up against, stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jonah was truly in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. 
And this brings us to our passage where we're going to see that the Lord brings Jonah to the point of death, yet saves him. And from this, we're going to see how God's, how to know if God's discipline is working. Now, in this portion, it's important to understand uh, the flow and the context of what's going on, or we can get confused. It's a difficult passage in Hebrew to interpret, but what's happening here is Jonah is praying from the belly of the fish. We'll see that. But in his prayer, he is recounting a prayer when he was outside drowning. So he's in the belly of the fish praying, but he's also in that prayer recounting the prayer that happened and what was happening when he was outside the fish. So that's important to understand. That's important to understand. Uh, chapter one, or chapter two, verse one. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, uh, Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. There you go. That's where the prayer is happening. But notice he's going to talk about and recount his, what happened outside and his prayer there. I called out in my distress to the Lord, and he answered. That's about when he was in the water, okay? And he answered me, and I cried for help from the depths of depth of Sheol. Thou didst hear my voice, for thou hast cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me, and all the breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from thy sight. Nevertheless, I will look towards thy holy temple." Water encompassed me to the point of death. See, he's talking about when he's drowning, right? He's, rec- he's recounting that in his prayer in the belly of the fish. And he says here, I spell from thy sight. Nevertheless, I look towards thy holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great uh, deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars uh, was, was, around, was around me forever. But... Thou hast brought me up from, brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. The reality is, most likely, Jonah is coming to the awareness in the fish that he is not dead and that he is alive. And he is recounting what happened when he was drowning. He's recounting his prayer at that point. He's recounting that. And he's also going to see his response to what has happened. Because it says here in verse 1, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God... Uh, from the stomach of the fish. He prayed to the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the great I am, the self-existent one. He prayed to the Lord, and it is his God. Jonah believed in the Lord. Yes, he was disobedient, but he had a relationship with the Lord. He prayed to his God. This is Jonah's God. And as we'll see, the Lord did answer him. But at this point, we need to see that he is praying from a horrible place, a horrible situation. Things are not over yet, but he is going to recognize that God has delivered him from from death, as we will see. He's in the belly of the fish. No doubt it's pitch black. No doubt he's in the stomach, as it says. There's stomach acids in fish. There's stomach acids in our stomachs. No doubt he's being tossed about in the sea all over the place. No doubt this was a horrible place. A horrible place. But at some time, and I believe we're going to see more towards, I believe, at the end of the three days and three nights, he is praying at this point inside the fish. And when did he pray? Uh, Was it in the beginning of those three days? Was it at the end? As I mentioned, I believe it was more towards the end because we're going to see at the end of this prayer, God spits him out. 
has the, has the uh, Baal spit him out. So I believe the prayer that we are seeing here, which also recounts the prayer and the situation out in the water before he was swallowed, is happening right at the end of those three days and three nights. And then at the end of the prayer, boom, he's spit out of the fish. He's vomited up out of the fish. So then notice what he says in verse 2. And I said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol, and thou didst hear my voice. Jonah was in deep trouble. How bad was his trouble? He cried out from the depth of Sheol. Sheol is, a, is, a, is the place of the dead, typically used to speak of the grave. I called from the grave. I was dying. I was dying. Remember, Jonah is in the fish recounting a previous cry for help when he was outside the fish drowning. He was in trouble, not in a good place. He was dying. And notice he acknowledges God answered his prayer. And he answered me, thou didst hear my voice. He called to the Lord and God answered him. God heard his voice. Now, on a side note, we're going to see that there are many statements the Lord that Jonah makes here that are very similar to phrases we see in other psalms, psalms of deliverance. They're very similar. You can see some notes in your Bibles that point from here to here and here. But the thing that's different here right now that we don't see, that we don't see is uh, Jonah getting to the point where he has the heart of the psalmist. Usually in those psalms of deliverance, you'll see a heart that is humble and contrite. Jonah's acknowledging it. He's acknowledging he's prayed, but he's not totally there yet, as we will see. He's not totally there yet, as you would see in those same psalms with the psalmists. So then we have this desperate call, and why is he calling? Why is he crying out to God in this desperate situation? Well, he's dying. Notice what he said. Four, he explains, verse three, for thou hast cast me into the deep. Now we're going to talk about that. That's a problem. There's still some problems with Jonah's thinking, okay? Uh, we're going to see that God didn't cast him into the deep. Jonah told the sailors to cast him in. He could have turned around. He could have said, okay, I'm going to obey and go back, and I believe the storm would have stopped. So he's still got some problems, but he's recognizing God's sovereignty, obviously, at this point. But he is the one who did it. But God has allowed it all to happen. Into the heart of the sea, and the, and the current engulfed me. All thy breakers and billows passed over me. He's going down. He's going down. This is a horrible situation. This is a horrible situation. Jonah is saying in, in a pious way, come almost blaming God, you put me in the sea, you've caused me to die. But God is very gracious, by the way. God is still very gracious. But uh, Jonah is the reason. Jonah said, hey, throw me in the sea and it'll stop. Okay, don't forget that. So then, uh, Jonah is uh, uh, a selfish and disobedient prophet and he has been thrown into the sea and he is drowning, but he calls out to the Lord. And the Lord does hear his voice. And here's why, what's going on. For thou hast cast me into the deep of the heart of the sea. That's, he's going down. And the current engulfed me. All thy breakers and billows passed over me. This is a horrifying language. He is, he is underwater. He is engulfed by the water. The breakers, billows passed over him. Um, he is, uh, uh, he's aligning himself in a sense with some of the things like David would say in Psalm 69. But we'll see David responds. David changes. Jonah does partially. We'll see. He does, but not uh, fully. 
So then there's a horrifying realization at this point. He's in the water. He's on his deathbed. And this is what he says in verse 4. So I said, I have been expelled from thy sight. Nevertheless, I will look towards thy holy temple. He's recounting his thinking while he is drowning. He said, I've been expelled by your, from your sight, but, but I'm going to look to your holy temple. Water encompassed me to what? The point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth and its bars were around me, uh, were, were, was around me forever. It's over. It's over. Notice he says, I've been expelled from thy sight, driven out. The idea speaks of separation. The same verb is used to speak of divorce when a, when a, one would be driven out from this, from the presence. It's separation. I've been separated from you, Lord. I've been driven out in a sense. I've, I'm, I'm expelled. And, uh, but nevertheless, notice what he says. I shall look again towards thy holy temple. Now, um, there's some interesting uh, text, textual things here that uh, may be helpful to us. Most of the translations uh, say basically uh, this, that I'm going to look toward your temple again. Okay, So what does that mean? The temple, is he talking about the temple in heaven or the replica on earth? Uh, he says again, so he's speaking of the earthly temple. Okay, he says, nevertheless... I'm going to uh, here see your temple again. He thinks he's going to survive. Well, this is kind of contradictory to him saying he's going to die, by the way. I'm dying, I'm dying, I'm dying, but I'm going to be alive and see your temple. Uh, There's some other translations that I think are quite helpful. Um, I think you can say it this way. How shall I see your temple again? I think that's a better translation. Not nevertheless, I'm going to see it again. But how? I'm dying. I'm never going to see your temple again. That fits much better with the context. It's a difficult portion to translate in Hebrew. There are some, uh, there are some other translations that do, uh, translate it that way. The, the Net Bible does it that way also. Uh, basically, um, so I've been expelled by your sight, sight, and, um, and basically, how shall I see it again? How shall I see it again? I think that's accurate. I think that's more accurate than, nevertheless, I'm going to see your temple again. And I think it's supported in the Hebrew possibly there. So then, what do we make from this portion? I believe he's saying, basically, I'm dying. I'm never going to see your temple again. It's over. It's over. It's done. Forever. Forever, he says. It's, it's done. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great depth deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. Pretty simple letter, language here. He's underwater. The seaweed's on his head, and he's to the point of death. He's to the point of death. Look at verse, uh, it says here, I descended to the roots of the mountains. He's, He's hitting the bottom. He's hitting the bottom. The earth and its bars were wrapped around me forever. Jonah is drowning. He is going down. He sees the earth as his tomb. The earth and its bars are around me forever. It is forever. I don't think we grasp the reality of what's happening here. Uh, he is at the point of death before the fish part. 
It wasn't like he fell in the water and a big giant whale came up and swallowed him up and he is, and he is a good, good to go. It wasn't like that. He is drowning. He is drowning. And, uh, you know, I don't think any of us have ever drowned before, but, uh, some may have partially, maybe possibly, and been revived, whatever it might be. It's a horrible thing. It's a horrible thing. Um, speaking of drowning, one writes that, uh, basically, uh, when you're drowning, there's a lot that can vary, but you're basically conscious for two to three minutes. Two to three minutes as you're drowning. That's a long time. That's a long time. And you're basically alive for about five to ten minutes, and then you die. Uh, water begins to enter the airways, the throat spasms, shutting down the passages to the lungs. Uh, the mechanism keeping the water out of the lungs continues to operate uh, until the person loses consciousness. Um, in, uh, in 10 to 15% of the cases, this spasm doesn't stop even afterwards. The person dies with, uh, even, even without water in the lungs, can die, can drown without the water actually getting it. It's the spasming, it's all that happening. It's a horrible thing. It's a horrible thing. And so we see Jonah has got to this point where he is drowning, but he cried out to the Lord. He did cry out for the Lord to save him in this, in this situation. He prayed in that situation. It is his God. He's on his deathbed. Now, some people say, oh, this is, this is, this is encouraging because I can send it up and God's going to save me and I'm not going to die. Well, guess what? Sometimes God's discipline does bring you all the way to death. If you're a believer and you are unwilling to respond to God's discipline and you are a real believer, he's going to continue that discipline. Uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We see that God will and does discipline even unto death. We should be fearing God. God is sovereign over our lives. Every breath we have is because of him. And we should fear him. Not that he's a bad God. He's a good God. But we should fear him so that we would not sin. That's the key. That's the key. We take sin too lightly. We take uh, the way we act and, 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 and the things we say too lightly, the things we do. We be very careful. First Corinthians chapter 11. And these are the... Uh, these are the um, Corinthians, they're out of order, they're having a big party during communion, and uh, God has to discipline them. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven. Therefore, whoever eats of this bread and drinks of this cup in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. That's a serious thing. You, you sit down and you remember what Christ did for you, and yet you're not willing to confess sin. This is a big deal. But let a man examine himself. Examine your heart. Get right with the Lord. So let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, that means you're not confessing your sin, you're still holding on to it. He says here, eats and drinks judgment to himself. Now he's going to just separate a little bit God's disciplinary judgment versus judgment on the world. But when you do that, you are actually eating and drinking his discipline upon you, his disciplinary judgment, and it could be very severe. He says here, uh, uh, judgment to himself, not discerning the, the Lord's, not discerning the Lord's body. For the, re, for this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. That's death. For this reason, sin unto death here, we see. Very serious. Uh, for if we judge ourselves, we will not be judged. 
But when we are judged, we are what? Chastened or disciplined by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. God is willing to go so far to take us out so that we would not be condemned with the world. Very serious thing. So we need to just recognize we have forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. And we can be forgiven, and we need to not hold on to sin. We do sin, we do mess up, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a great God we have. What a great God. So then, what's going on here? Um, did Jonah die? Did he die? There is some thought, uh, theologically, that he did. Jesus uses the example of himself being in the grave three days and nights, and he died. And just like Jonah was in the whale three days and three nights. There's some parallelism there. Did Jonah actually perish? Well, it doesn't say so, but he was certainly to the point of death. We know that he almost died, for sure. For sure. And we don't, and we can't say that he didn't, uh, being a type of Jesus Christ. It's possible. Uh, we know Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. We have, you know, we, we know that there was, so did he die? Well, Maybe, maybe not, but what we do know for sure is that he was drowning and he was within an inch of death. He was right there. He was right there. And I believe the point, he was on his deathbed. He was on his deathbed. It was within that two to three minutes, he's ready to die. Okay. We need to remember God is disciplining Jonah for his disobedience. God said, Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, proclaim against it. Uh, Jonah went the other way. This is why this is happening. This is why this is happening. Jonah was a prophet. He took a vow to follow the Lord, to be a prophet. Prophets in those days would take a vow in a sense. Later on, he'll say, I'm going to pay my vows. He says, I'm going to serve the Lord. Now, you may not have taken a vow, but you've all said, I want to serve the Lord. I'm going to serve you, Lord God. That's a vow in a sense, right? And you go the other way and you stop serving him. You're in trouble, but God's good. But God's good. So then he is within an inch of losing his life, losing his life. So let's go back and look at this. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, verse 1, his God from the stomach of the fish. And now he's going to recount. He's going to recount. And I said, I called out of my distress, the Lord, he answered. He is coming to the realization in this fish that he's alive, that God answered his prayers. Whether he passed out, whatever it was, whether he was aware conscious the last three days, right? Uh, he's coming to the awareness, I cried out and you saved me. I was on my deathbed and you saved me. He says here, I descended, verse 8, to the roots of the mountains, the earth and spars are around me, but thou hast brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. You saved me. Now, this prayer is happening in the midst of a perfectly black, slimy, acidy, tossing around fish. He's in the belly. It's not a nice place. He's not complaining about the fish, is he? He's saying, you saved my life. You saved my life. He recognizes this. But thou, I was dying, maybe died. I was dying, but thou hast brought up my life from the pit. Kind of interesting language. You brought me up from the pit. Almost resurrection language in a sense. You know, you get that sense. Oh, Lord, my God. He is alive. He is alive. So Jonah has been saved by the Lord. He is in the stomach of the fish. And he declares this. 
in the context of a prayer to God. And then notice he summarizes uh, this slipping away and remembering the Lord. Look at verse 7. Let me get a drink of water here. Look at verse 7. So he says here, while I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. <coughs> and my prayer came to thee in thy holy temple. And that's the that's heavenly temple, okay? My prayer came to thee. While I was fainting away, it speaks of his soul. While my life was fleeting. My soul, my life was gone. My life was gone. He says here, he says, he remembered the Lord. He remembered the Lord. Very interesting. He wasn't remembering the Lord in a real relationship earlier when he was saying, throw me over, right? <coughs> he remembered the Lord. Now, there are some of you here today that uh, you might be at the point of death someday and cry out to the Lord. <coughs> if you are not the Lord's, it better be a cry for salvation from sin, not from your circumstance. You see, there are many people who live their lives uh, and then something like this happens. They're going down and they cry. They remember the Lord, but not for salvation. They just want to get out of the situation. Jonah was already saved. Jonah was already saved. You know, it's interesting. When people are about to die, they seem to recognize God pretty quickly. There was a, you know, having been a corporate pilot, I look at aviation accidents at times and desiring to learn from their mistakes. And there was a a situation back in the 70s with a Western Airlines DC-10 coming into Mexico City. They have the recordings of it. You can listen to it if you want to. I don't suggest you do. Uh, where the captain is swearing, you know, using God's name in vain, you know, and just, just you know, has obviously does not know the Lord, doesn't care about the Lord, just cussing. And right about the point they're about to land, they see there are vehicles on the runway, and he screams out at the point of death, by the way, Oh, Jesus. You know, saying, well, did he get saved? I don't believe so. Unless that was a cry for salvation from sin, which I don't believe it was. People recognize the reality. Using God's name in vain, then crying out in a desperate cry for help at that moment. If you are a non-believer, what the Lord hears is a cry for salvation. You see, because if you're in your sins, the Lord doesn't hear. Psalm 66, David writes this, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord doesn't hear. Uh, Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, neither his ear so dull that it cannot hear, but this is to Israel. But your iniquities, that's sin, have made a separation between you and your God. That's a co- They were in a covenant, but they were separate. And you and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. If you're not willing to address the thing that's in between you, which is sin, by crying out to Christ for salvation, God isn't listening. Your sin is in the way. Your sin has caused a separation. Now, for those of us believers, don't let it get to this point where it is so bad and you're about to die that you're crying out to the Lord. Don't let it get to this point where you're being disciplined to the point of death. God is very gracious here, but as we saw in 1 Corinthians, there are some who did die. There are some who did die. They died in, their, they died in, in the context of God's disciplinary judgment. So then Jonah is uh, dying. He prays, and the Lord intervenes. The Lord intervenes, and how does the Lord intervene? He appointed a great fish. He swallowed him. 
He was delivered. He's delivered. And uh, he is inside the fish now recounting what happened and praying. He says he prayed to the Lord in the belly of the fish. Verse 1. He's praying now. Now look at uh, verse 8. I think we're going to see the fruit of God's discipline. When you know, when you can know that God's discipline is working in you, that it's working, it's actually changing you. And we're going to see this, not perfectly in Jonah, we'll see that in chapter 3 and 4, but it is working. It is working in him. Notice verse 8. Yes, this is a prayer in the belly of the fish. Those who regard vain isles forsake their faithfulness. And we're going to talk about a textual issue there. Uh, I don't think that... Now, that term faithfulness here is the term chesed. It speaks of loyal love, loving kindness. It's the same term translated compassion in chapter 4. That's what this book is about. God's compassion and Jonah's lack of compassion. Okay, It's saving compassion. It's loyal love. And I don't think any, and there's no place that I've seen, I've looked at almost every verse, I think, and I don't see anywhere where it speaks of a non-believer's compassion. He says here, those who regard vain else forsake their faithfulness, their compassion. I don't think that's the case. I think there's a better translation. They forsake the Lord's chesed. You see, those who, um, those who worship idols are forsaking God's compassion and salvation. You go worship idols, you are missing out on the compassion of God through Jesus Christ. You're missing out on his saving compassion that saved the Ninevites when they responded, when he declared their judgment was coming. He says, those who keep or regard, those who observe vain, empty idols, that's what they are, they basically forget or they they basically... uh, they basically do not receive or they they negate the possibility of receiving uh, God's faithfulness. On a side note, it's quite possible Jonah is even thinking of Psalm 31, verse 6. Remember, he's a prophet and he knows the word of God. Uh, Psalm 31, verse 6. I hate those who regard vain idols, but I trust in the Lord. I trust in the Lord. There are those who keep and observe empty, vain idols, and they forsake, I believe, God's compassion or his faithfulness, his faithfulness. You see, idolaters uh, will never experience the chesed of God. They must see their sin and turn to the living God for salvation. And notice, he says here, those who regard vain idols forsake, I believe, your faithfulness. That's what he's trying to say. But... I will sacrifice to thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I'm going to offer thankful sacrifices. Wow, he's in the midst of the whale. He is is totally in this horrible dungeon of a pit in a sense, but he has realized God has saved his life. And here is the fruit. When you are thankful for what God has done for you, when you are worshipfully thankful You see, we're supposed to be thankful. We should be thankful for what Christ has done for us. We sing these songs and these praises. That should be where our hearts are at. If you're not thankful for your salvation, something's wrong with you. If you came in and you're singing these songs that really didn't affect you at all, you're not really thankful, something's wrong. Jonah is thankful. He is thankful, and he's going to sacrifice to thee with, what does he have to sacrifice? He's going to build a fish altar in the fish? He's going to sacrifice with a voice of thanksgiving. I'm going to be thankful. He's thankful. 
He's thankful in the will. If you want to know if God's discipline is working on you, you're going to be thankful for what God has done for you. You're going to be thankful for his salvation. Be thankful for his sparing you. You're going to be thankful. That's one of the big evidences. You see, all throughout Scripture we see that those who are walking with the Lord rightly are thankful. Those who are walking with the Lord are thankful. Let's look at some Psalms. Psalm 717. 717. If you're being disciplined and all you are doing is complaining, I posit to say the discipline isn't working yet and it's going to get worse. Don't let it get worse. Let it work. Let it work. Psalm 717. I will give thanks to the Lord according to his righteousness and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord most high. And we get to do that together. Go up to Psalm 9, verse 1, for the choir director on the Muth Leban, a psalm of David. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I will tell of all thy wonders. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for who you are and what you've done for me. Thank you so much. Psalm 33, 2, give thanks to the Lord with a lyre. Sing praises to him with a harp of ten strings. Psalm 105, verse 1, oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Psalm 106, verse 1, praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his chesed is everlasting. His loving kindness is everlasting. Psalm 111, verse 1, praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart and the company of the upright and the assembly. Praise the Lord. That's where we are right now. Psalm 118, verse 1, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. You see, when you worship vain idols, you forfeit, you, you miss his loving kindness, his saving kindness. Psalm 136, verse 3, give thanks to the Lord, for the Lord's, Lord of lords, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the Lord, for his loving kindness is everlasting. You see, those who don't know the Lord don't give thanks. Now, that is a characteristic of those who are on their way to eternal doom. Romans chapter 1 points out that man suppressing the truth and unrighteousness spirals into idolatry, and God gives man over to that. Gives him over to that. And although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. Or give thanks. Thankfulness is an evidence God's discipline is working in your life. Mr. Jonah, the disobedient prophet, wasn't down in the hole thanking God before. He's thanking God now in the belly of the fish. He was deep in the ship running away. Now he's deep in the belly of the ship, fish, and he is thanking God. I will sacrifice to thee with the voice of thanksgiving. Got nothing to give here but to give thanks, and that's what God wants he doesn't want our stuff. He doesn't want things. He wants our hearts. He wants our hearts. Now notice there's fruit. There's fruit coming from this uh, slimy stomach. There's fruit coming. Notice what else? He says, those who regard vain idols forsake, I believe, God's has their faithfulness. But I will sacrifice to thee with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Here's another evidence of thankful of uh, being being God's discipline working. I'm going to obey you. Your word says, "Do your work hardly unto the Lord." I'm going to do that. 
Your word says, love your wives. I'm going to do that. Your word says, I live in an understanding way. I'm going to do that. Your word says, don't be embittered. I'm going to do that. Wives, your word says to live in a gentle, quiet spirit. I'm going to do that. Your word says to, to, to love your husbands and your children. I'm going to do that. Your word says to respect your husband. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do what I have said and to you in the past I would do. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Your word says that I'm to serve in your body and I've been willing to do it. I'm going to do that. That which I have vowed, I will pay. You see, most likely, now we're going to know, we're going to see that he means he's going to go to Nineveh. He does it. Okay, now he does it reluctantly, but he does it. He's obeying the Lord. He's not disobeying, he's obeying. Now God's got to work on the heart issue, and he does do that in chapter 4. But he is obeying. Now, that which I vowed, I don't think Jonah ever vowed that he would go to Nineveh, but I believe he vowed that he would serve the Lord as a prophet. And I believe he's saying, I will do it. I will serve you as a prophet. I will do it. I believe that is what Jonah is saying here. And God's discipline is beginning to bring forth fruit. Thankfulness. And he's not, it's not even done yet. He's in the whale. It's not even, Jonah has no assurance he's going to get vomited up. He has no assurance. He just knows he's alive. So it's bringing thankfulness and obedience. If you're not obeying, God's discipline's not working. It's not working. Now, God may have to work on your attitudes and your hearts, like we see with Jonah, and he does, because he's faithful. But uh, here, he is obeying. And then notice, he gives God all the credit. That's another evidence. Three evidences. Salvation, end of verse uh, 9. Salvation is from the Lord. God saved me. I didn't save myself. God did it. God saved Jonah spiritually. He saved Jonah physically. Salvation is from the Lord. It is all from God. He gets all the glory. You see, when you begin to give God all the glory, I believe it's an evidence something has changed. Something has changed. You see, salvation is from the Lord. Remember what the angel told um, uh, uh, Joseph. said, And she will bear a son, speaking of Mary, and you shall call his name Jesus, Matthew one twenty one. For it is he who shall save his people from their sins. And the name Jesus means the Lord is salvation. Salvation is from the Lord. Acts 4.12, And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been granted and has been given under men by which we must be saved. Salvation is from the Lord. You see, Jonah's heart has been changed. Jonah's heart has been changed. You see, by grace we've been saved through faith. And that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Salvation is from the Lord. Can you in your heart of hearts, and would you in your heart of hearts say this to the Lord like Micah, Micah 7, 18? Who is a God like thee? who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession. He does not retain his anger forever, but delights in loyal or unchanging love. Hesed, he delights in it. Can you say that? God's discipline is working in you, if you can. So then, Jonah is yielded. 
God had to take him to the point of death. May he not have to do that to you or I. We need to learn from these things. These things have been written for our instruction that we would not crave evil things. We need to learn. We need to learn. So we've seen God's disciplinary hand bringing Jonah to the point of death. We've seen fruit to begin to appear. He's thankful. He desires to obey, and he gives God all the credit. That's how you can know if God's discipline is working in your life. So what happens next? Verse 10. So the Lord spoke to the fish. I like that. The Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. That's pretty gross. Um, he spoke to the fish and it's my belief that this is at the end. Obviously it is at the end, but that this prayer is right at the same time. And Jonah prays this. He's thankful. He's going to do what God says, and he says, salvation is from the Lord, and God speaks to the fish, and boom, he's thrown up. Isn't that great? That severe discipline is over. It's over. Now, you know, we need to know that sometimes the consequences of God's discipline don't go away, but it's over. His hand of discipline on us is over when you desire to obey, when you're thankful, and you give him all the credit. It's over. Now, there may be consequences, but it's going to be a changed heart. Changed heart. And there's going to be the peaceful fruit of righteousness, like we see in Hebrews chapter 12. Amazing language. It's right away. It's right away. The Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. That's wonderful. God speaks, and his will is carried out. He speaks directly to the fish. Not a pretty picture. Uh, Jonah's thankful, ready to obey, giving God the glory. The severe discipline is over. Now we've got some other stuff to come because Jonah's still got some problems. But he is now thankful, he's ready to obey, and he's given God all the glory. Some of you are in the midst of severe discipline. You are not obeying the Lord, whether it's at home, it's in your family, it's uh, at work, it's at school, it's in the world, whatever it might be. And uh, the Lord is trying to wake you up, that you would see your sin, you would acknowledge it, you'd be willing to do what he calls you to do, willing to do what he asks you to do with a thankful heart, not a grudging heart, but a thankful heart, as we'll see, giving him the glory. There are some of you who are AWOL in a sense, but if you're willing to obey, your restoration may not be pretty. This wasn't pretty, being thrown up onto the bleach or whatever it was. And obviously, the little whale went back to the shoreline, right? <laughs> he was already out in the sea, and the God brought the whale back there. He threw him up on the side. If you're willing to obey, it's not pretty. But the discipline, the heavy hand is over. And God's going to help continue to make you like his son, Jesus. Well, today we've seen God's discipline of a disobedient prophet brought to the brink of death, but a gracious God answered his prayers as he was drowning. And then when his heart was changed in the midst of that discipline, he had him spewed out and he is ready to go serve the Lord now. Are you a believer? Are you obediently doing what God has called you to do? Or are you fighting with it? Whether it's, again, in your marriage, what's with your family, 
whether it's at work, whether it's uh, whatever it might be, serving the Lord. If you're a true believer, God's going to discipline. God's going to discipline. You need to pray. You need to confess. You need to be thankful for what God has saved you from. You need to be ready to do what he asks you to do. Ready to do it. I will do what I vowed. You came to Jesus Christ. You said, I want to follow the Lord. I'm going to do what I vowed. I'm going to follow Jesus. Maybe there's some here today, you're non-believers. It is appointed man wants to die and then the judgment. Turn to the Lord before it's too late. In that deathbed portion when you're crying out to him, if the sin isn't the reason, he's not going to hear. He's not going to hear. I would get on your knees and humble yourself and cry out to the Lord Jesus. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Cry out to him and he will deliver you from eternal damnation, eternal punishment. Are you willing to trust the Lord and do what is right and serve the Lord? That's our desire. That's what we vow. That's what we desire to do. May we do it. May we do it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness, your faithfulness to Jonah, your faithfulness to us. May we learn from this. May we not uh, stray from your commands. May we not deliberately reject what you have called us to do at work, in the family, at school, with non-believers, at church. May we obey with thankful hearts, for salvation is from you. We thank you for your son who brought that salvation to us through his death for our sins and his resurrection from the dead. Father, thank you for your kindness and mercy towards us. May we learn. May we learn from Jonah's situation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Kelly, would you lead us in the greatest I faithfulness?